Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with an English conductor who's had an extremely diverse career, starting as a singer, then becoming a conductor on both the concert stage and in the Opera House, while also starting his own record label. He's probably best known, however, for starting his own ensemble in 1979, an ensemble he still conducts to this day, The Sixteen. It's a great pleasure to welcome Harry Christophers. Harry, it's lovely to see you, to meet you, and to chat with you today. How are you? I'm pretty well, thanks, Mike. It's great to see you as well. And chat Brilliant. <laughs> lovely. Um, I gather you're a man of Kent. Uh, I used to live in Kent. Uh, I was never born there, but you were born there. Um, and I always go back to your very beginnings. Uh, did you Were you born into a musical household? How did music first come into your life uh, in the middle of Kent? Goudhurst, I think it is, you were born? Yeah, it was, yeah, was Goudhurst. I was born in a pub. It was called the Peacock Inn. Still right. exists, yeah. just a uh, Shepparton pub now. Um, yeah, my my mum my used to play the piano. I mean, she came from quite a good family, but married my dad in the war. My dad was from uh, a sort of farming family down in Devon. Yeah. And uh, actually, you know, music wasn't really in the family. My mother used to try and teach us all to play the piano and I think my sort of earliest memory was sort of singing singing carols in the in the sort of in the in the bar with the local farmers at Christmas but then I had a I mean a big big sort of transformation in my life my my parents had to move from Gouters they moved to Canterbury mm. my dad took a little uh, tobacconist confectioner shop in Castle Street it's now an estate agent most uh-huh. of the shops in Canterbury estate agents <laughs> and um, I went uh I went, they sent me off for an audition to Canterbury Cathedral Choir School. And I didn't really know I could sing. I, I, I probably couldn't actually, but anyway, but I got in. I mean, that yeah. was the main thing. And honestly, life completely and utterly changed. I couldn't believe, you know, I'd never walked into a cathedral ever before. No. You know, there I was age nine and it was amazing. And, and of that training that you get, it's not just how to sing in a choir. It's, you know, harmony training, um, schooling. You're singing every single day. Um, uh, how was it for you? Did you find it initially rather tiring and daunting or was it just a brand new, exciting experience? I think it was that. It was exactly that, a brand new experience. And it, it was absolutely staggering. And, you know, it was, in those days, it was just a, a choir school. There were 60, 60 of us. 40, 40 boarders and 20 day boys. And so mm. the 20 day boys came from Herne Bay, Whitstable, Canterbury. And we all had to get there. We're sort of by eight o'clock in the morning, rehearse every day. Sundays were a write off. But, you know, we loved it. And, um, it, 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 you know, as you said, Mike, it, it, you know, we had to sing a service every day, new music each day. And mm. you're just sort of, you're thrown into it. And you, you have to, you learn to sight read incredibly quickly mm. um but it was all the sort of add-ons you know it was the, it was the social side you knew you're thrown into community and you know people who came to the services always used to think you know we're, we're so angelic you know there we are in our roughs <laughs> and our surfaces and then you know they'll see us tearing around on the bikes around the cloisters afterwards and uh, you know uh, just being being kids yeah. um, but it was lovely and but i think i think the special thing about these places is that if the person in charge is an absolute maverick, then you're in for something special. And I was really lucky. Um, I had a person called Alan Wicks, who sadly died a few years ago, but um, Alan was our choir master and organist. And, and Alan was, he's, you know, we, we learned sort of well after we left the place that he was a maverick. Mm. Uh, he was sort of, he wasn't anti-establishment in any way, but he, he, wasn't, he wasn't your regular 
cathedral organist. He, he was the first person that played Messiaen in this country. <laughs> to record it, and he used to champion um, uh, contemporary music. He, he played that massive ligeti piece on the festival organ and fused it. Apparently, when it, <laughs> he did it, um, so you know we would we would be doing performing tippets, all sorts of uh, more modern things alongside all the early stuff. Yeah. Um, but he was he was he was very special, and uh, you know we learnt we learnt about how to make music and and to have fun making music. Well, that's the thing that's come over in the past podcasts. I remember Trevor Pinnock telling a story about getting getting in, into or Mark Mark Elder getting Trevor Pinnock into trouble because they were giggling in in some service or other. And but yeah, it, they're, it, they're Canterbury choristers, you know. Yes, they were Canterbury right, yeah. boys as well. Yeah. Yes. Before my before my time, I hasten to add. <laughs> of course, <laughs> uh, of course, uh, I, I was not not insinuating anything else. Um, but yeah, that, that's that learning by all being of the same same age, uh, being thrust into it um, and just absorbing so much music day in, day out. Mm. Did you go to instruments? Um, uh, yeah. Were, were instrumental lessons offered, were offered, I'm assuming. Yes, they were. I mean, um, I started learning the violin. Uh, my mum wanted me to learn the violin and I, I, I didn't like it at all. And I persuaded <laughs> her, it got, gave me arm ache and uh, I learned the clarinet. Yeah. And in those days, we used to, the, the teachers were the, um, they were from the Deal Marine Band. And uh, they were fantastic. You know, all the, the all the wind teachers were from there. And, uh, and you know, we had a little school. I remember trying to play the slow mode of the Mozart clarinet quintet at choir school. So, you know, he's about 12 and things with, with, with the, the strings and the orchestra. And, and it, was, it was lovely. And, yeah, and I continued. Now, I was very lucky after choir school, I went to King's uh, Canterbury, which was literally at the back of the cathedral. Um, very lucky indeed because, I, you know, I got a... I got a music scholarship there. I think I also got a small academic scholarship. And the cathedral blessed them. I mean, they they helped me, uh, helped my parents send me there. Mm. And uh, it was great. I mean, there was amazing music tradition there. Um, the, the director of music was a guy called Edred Wright, another sort of charismatic figure. You know, we're talking sort of um, late 60s, early 70s. And uh, we call, he, he called us by our Christian names. And I, we called him Edred. Now that's pretty rare. That's pretty that's rare in school anyway today. Yeah. And th this was back then. And um, so, and it was well known for music. I mean, it was well known for sport as well. We, I mean, with, you know, likes of, I mean, one of my contemporaries was David Gower. So cricket was pretty good. Um, <laughs> and, but, you know, in terms of the instrumentalists, you had people coming from choir schools all over the country. Yeah. So, you know, my contemporary clarinetist was Andrew Mariner. That wasn't a bad start. And, no. uh, the the on the flautist was a person called Paul Edmund Davis, who's only recently retired from the LSO. So you know the orchestra was full of NYO players, and oh. and 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 we had a thing called King's Week every um, summer, and there'd be two symphony concerts, and that's where I played things like Sibelius Two, Brahms One, uh, Rhapsody in Blue, uh, all sorts of things. Um, mm. and so it was it was pretty good. Well, we used to think it was pretty good quality music. Um, <laughs> But uh, you know, it was a, again a lot of fun, and uh, again, you just thrust into fan fantastic friendships, and yeah, it was cool. Well, Kent has always had a good um, music scene. I mean, as I said, I grew up there. I moved there when I was twelve, and joined the county youth orchestra and local youth orchestra and made my towns until I left to go to music college in Birmingham when I was eighteen. And as a consequence of being in my county youth orchestra in Kent, I got to meet conductors for the first time. Not just Alan Vincent, the guy who conducted it all the time, but guest conductors. Was that where you first 
met conductors and was it an interest to you at all at this point because to me it wasn't it was only later where I, I got interested in it no I mean I loved you know I love sport as well you know I wasn't I wasn't a rugby player or anything like that but I used to play I, I loved basketball I played that a lot and um, I you know being in the orchestra was great I mean it was much more for me it was a real social thing and yeah. we were very lucky outside the school there was uh, uh trevor y used to live in the in, in canterbury and trevor used to teach practically every uh, uh girl flautist in the in the area mm. and uh, he could he, he 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 developed something he started something called the kent wind society right. and uh this was absolutely amazing it was phenomenal and he wow. used to get down his his mates i mean you know Trevor knew everybody. So I remember we did a, a, a wind band version. I think it was Safley, uh, no, somebody, uh, well, anyway, it was a big, big Berlioz piece. It had the one with the jingling Johnny in it, whichever that one's. Oh, Safley Fantastique. It, it, or yeah. no, Safley Marsh Triomphal or something like that. Or it's got yes, that's the one. Yeah, it's yes, got Triomphal yes, in the, the title. That's, yeah. It's exactly the one. Yeah. And, and he got down Colin Davis to oh, conduct wow. us in, yeah. in the nave of Canterbury Cathedral. And I remember we, we were there all sitting down playing. Andrew Rano was with me and, and all sorts of people. And uh, in walks this, this, this person. I mean, I, I suppose, I don't know. I don't know how old, how old Colin is, but I suppose he was I suppose, probably 20 years older than us or something like that. Yeah. And, this, and he came in in a fur coat, real fur coat, one, one in those days. <laughs> and he sort of draped it on a chair and thing and then started conducting. We just thought, wow, yeah. what is this? And, but, you know, I, uh, I said before, you know, my parents had a you know, little shop. So, you know, we, we didn't, as, as a kid, I never went to concerts. So mm. the only sort of music I was doing were concerts at school, uh, et cetera. And I remember though, um, watching on the television one day and there was this uh, piece of music coming from a big cathedral, you know, I learned afterwards it was St Paul's Cathedral and I learned afterwards the piece was Verdi Requiem, mm. uh, but it was the conductor. I wasn't interested in the music. It was the conductor that totally and absolutely fascinated me. And I, I sort of saw him sort of being so expressive to the orchestra and, and chorus and soloists and sort of taking this music back inside himself and it's sort of it from him it went into the audience and the listening you know, us listening in in the, in the house and anyway the, the conductor was Leonard Bernstein oh. and and uh, pretty pretty impressive and I remember that that sort of stuck with me um but you know I was uh, you know again so much of my life's been luck I think and I went to I, I got into Oxford um I had rubbish, rubbish A levels. Absolutely <laughs> rubbish. I got in because I, I got in because I could sing, yeah. and you could could in those days. And the thing is, I didn't I hadn't read, I hadn't uh, I hadn't done uh, O level music or A level music. Yeah. Um, and and my A levels were in classics. They were so bad, and yet I got into Oxford to read classics. Um, and I remember coming back, having got my choral scholarship, and coming back to term and uh, saying to the classics master, I said, uh, "I've got a choral scholarship at Oxford." Oh, and his face went an ashen white. He said, "What? Well, my goodness me! We've got a lot of work to do to get you through the entrance examination." I went, "Hang on a minute." I don't actually have to take it. <laughs> so, apparently, all I got to do is write my name at the top of the piece of paper. So, and so that he he was he was uh, yeah, he was delighted in one way and crestfallen in another. But uh, but yeah, so I've been mean, going to Oxford and uh, singing at Magdalen Oxford again. You know, singing day in day out yeah. uh, to to a to a much higher standard. I mean, uh, for, uh, as a as a as a male singer uh, than I'd ever done at school. 
uh, and again, thrust into a fantastic community full of great friends. And not all of us, you know, not all, all of us in the choir read, read music, but again, we had an inspirational um, tutor and conductor, Bernard Rose. I mean, people who sing in choirs all over the country will know his responses, they are sort of legendary. But, you know, Bernard was amazing. So it was uh, a fantastic time. Weren't those the days when, you know, if you had a talent, uh, they'd let you into places like that. No, I I, had, I was terrible. My A-levels were exactly the same. I had two music A-levels to a fair degree, but I got into conservatory because I could play the violin. You know, uh, they basically said, come here and practice for four years. Well, hurrah, that's exactly what I wanted to do. No degree. Uh, I, you know, I, I think I went to one... One harmony lecture in four years and one piano class and I basically learned to play the violin, which was fine. I think these days you have to go with so many A-levels to make sure you can get a degree and understand what's you going do. on. Yeah, yeah, you do very much so. You then move from Magdalen College, Oxford, after a couple of years to Westminster Abbey uh, and the BBC Singers. Um, at any point yet, is conducting starting to come in? Are you starting to, to do things on the side? Yeah, I mean, well, when I was at Oxford, I think I was asking to make a decision to, did I want to play the clarinet or did I want to sing or mm. did I want to do something else? And, you know, I, I was one of, you know, hundreds of students and still are hundreds of students today who come out of university haven't got a clue what they want to do and mm. I, I did have I mean those days I had lots of job I've, I'd, I'd applied for various things I applied for a be a research assistant at the British Museum I thought I might like to go to Hamburg to the uh, Hoch School of Music there I thought mm. I'd like I thought I want thought I wanted to go into television that's what I really wanted to do and be a be a presenter or, or producer um, so I had you know I had all these sort of things lined up and then uh, Bernard Rose at Morden said, look, I just had a phone call from uh, Douglas Guest at, at the Abbey. He's got a tenor vacancy. Um, do you want to go in for it? And I, I thought, oh, yeah, well, the thought of living in London, that's great. Mm. Uh, I, I, hadn't, I didn't think in a month of Sundays I'd be offered the job, but I was. Mm. So, you know, I, there was I uh, at the Abbey and it was, yeah, pretty, I mean, I'd, I'd conducted a few things at Oxford um, and that was the beauty of, of Oxford, actually. Um, you know, students were, you, you, you were sort of encouraged to sort of get things going on your own. And, you know, the, the, the music society in Morden was run by the students. So we would, you know, form little groups um, and do all sorts of things, uh, which was great. So, you know, the 16 did start, you know, almost as soon as I'd left Oxford uh, mm. in a very sort of um, cavalier way it, and it's just simply me getting a group of singers to, together to perform the music we love doing mm. um but i was still singing and you know i was still sort of enjoying singing so i had six years at the abbey and at the same time as in i was in english music theater company which was um the new name the newly formed english opera group so it was it had the blessing of britain and peers mm. uh, uh, britain had actually just died um but Piers was heavily involved in English English music theatre. It was run by Stuart Bedford. Mm -hmm. He just died last year. Yes, that's right. Colin Graham. And that was amazing because that was a young company. I, I'd never done any opera before yeah. in my life. I'd done a bit at university, but my first professional opera was Death in Venice at Covent Garden. And, you know, with Piers as Ashton Bark and Shirley Quirk and Bowman and all sorts of people. It was absolutely amazing. Um, and, but, you know, through... 
six years singing at the Abbey. I, I, to be absolutely honest, my I, 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 I sort of I got quite nervous singing, particularly singing solos, and I, mm. I didn't, I wasn't really enjoying it. And through that time, I was thinking, actually, do you know, I'm, I feel much better if I was on the other side, encouraging singers not to feel like I was feeling really. Mm. Um, and then I, then I joined the BBC Singers for three years. And that was, that's a really hilarious thing because I, I wanted to stop singing. <laughs> and I had a phone call from the BBC manager um, and uh, he said, look, I want to offer your job in the BBC Singers. I said, oh, Jeffrey, look, I, I really don't want to sing anymore. And he said, oh, you know, you know, would you not consider it? I said, not really. Then John Paul, the then conductor of the BBC Singers, phoned me up a few minutes later and said, Harry, we really want you to have this job. I said, no, look, John, honestly, I've, my singing days, I, I really want to do something else. Um, and he said, look, I know you do. I know you want to conduct. We will let you off for every bit of conducting you want to do and we will support you. And I thought, blimey. And he said, you know, you just got married. You've just, you just got a mortgage on, a, on your flat. You've got, to, you've got to pay for this. Yeah. So I thought, okay, yeah, that's pretty fair, isn't it? So yeah. pretty good deal. So I, I joined. And actually, again, as luck would have it, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I saw and worked with fantastic conductors. In those days, the BBC Singers worked a lot with Boulos, mm. uh, Rosa Svensky, who never yeah. had rehearsing, so you're on, you're on your metal uh, <laughs> in the end. Uh, Andrew Davis, Andrew was great. Um, there were also, uh, Seiji Ozawa, I mean, we did, yeah. we did the um, uh, first two acts of, of St. Francis of Assisi when Messiaen had just written that, we premiered those. And, you know, you, I, I watched these people like a hawk yeah. and I, I was fascinated in their way of rehearsal. I was also fascinated in, in the fact that they seemed to be so much better than, um, well, they were so much better than the sort of so-called people who called themselves choral conductors. And, and actually behind all that, I started thinking, well, actually there should be no difference. You know, you yeah. as a conductor, you need to know about an orchestra and you need to know about singers. Um, and actually during that time, although I was developing the 16, I was conducting chamber orchestras all over uh, Europe. I was, um, I was really lucky. Again, I, I was, I used to conduct Avanti and Tapiola Sinfonietta in mm. Finland, Esa Pekasala and Aduka Pekasaraste. They had re only recently formed those orchestras. There was the Deutsches Kammerphilharmonie in in, uh, in Berlin, who then mm. moved to Bremen. Bremen, yeah. Again, yeah. really early days of that, and a lot of. It's lovely. I saw them on a video in lockdown. I saw a lot of the people that you know they were new, you know, and, and I was young with them as well at the same time. It's it's lovely and. You know, I used to do a lot of uh, Baroque and and, and and sort of more modern, not, not avant-garde, but contemporary. Yeah. And uh, I used to love that. And uh, I, I suppose I just sort of, I learned, I learned my own way of conducting by, by sort of trial and error, really, because I never, I've never, I shouldn't really say this, actually, but I've never, ever had a conducting lesson in my life. Um, well, you're not the only one who's come on no. here at all. <laughs> you know, and and I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I would say I have had some conducting lessons, um, most notably from Jonathan Delmar and from Yorma Panola. But I would say 90% of what I know is through playing in the CBSO and watching them, uh, watching mm -hmm. the great people conducting me, you know, from sitting a matter of feet away in the second violin section. Um, yeah. Uh, and 
yeah, I, 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 I don't think you should be ashamed or upset. You know, I think that lots of people have had have had wonderful careers who've not had a lesson, but they've they've done it somehow. And actually, I think the great thing about conducting is you learn by doing it. You can read all the books you like and go to so many classes, but the more you do it, the more you learn. Um, yeah, I agree totally. Yeah. I mean, when I'm teaching people today, you know, it is, you know, it's it's just sort of watching them and what they do and, and how, you know, how they can be more expressive, how, I mean, they find, you know, they mirror beat a lot, they're, there's no tap, there's no rhythm in their body, all those sort of things. Yeah. And, you, you know, we've learned that. We've learned that by, you know, over the years by, you know, somebody in the orchestra saying actually Harry I can't you know your body's moving too much I can't actually work out what your beat is and think <laughs> oh yeah right I sort of level that and yeah. you know but you know by taking criticism in those early days and 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 you know trial and error and right. you know I've always been one if I've been done doing a, a, a big new work I've always been one that I'll you know I'll try that somewhere right away from the public eye mm. Um, mm. Where, where I can make my mistakes and then come back feeling feeling more confident in it. It's definitely a tactic I've used in the past as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you've mentioned it a couple of times. Uh, according to Wikipedia, the ever so um, uh, informative and often wrong Wikipedia, but you'll tell me if they're wrong. 1979 is when you founded officially the 16, your multi-awards winning group. I've written down two things here. Why? Why did you find or found or whatever start uh, a new group? Uh, you said it had been sort of happening over a period of time before then. And and did you have a long-term idea of what you wanted it to become? Um, you know, because uh, sometimes people start these groups and they have some short-term ideas, but did you have a long-term strategy for what, what you thought the 16 might become as no, it is today? Not at all, not at no. all. I mean, it was, you know, it was literally, you know, putting together a group of friends. I mean, what was interesting about it in those early days, it... it you know, when somebody forms their own group at a university or something, it tends to be, you know, literally their friends, their age group, etc. The, the early days, the 16 wasn't that. It was people older than me. It was people younger than me. It's people I'd met at Canterbury days or, you know, things. So it wasn't centred around my Oxford life at, at all, really. Um, and it was purely there to carry on performing the music that I got to sort of love at, and, yeah. at Oxford. I, I didn't, you know, I went to Oxford not knowing anything really about about uh, 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 renaissance music and I, I sort of got the bug for it i sang in the very early days the talent scholars sang a bit with the clerks of oxford but there was something niggling at me about it you know i just felt you know this the first thing was this music needed more than just sort of singing the notes on the page yeah and i i was and and of course, early days of 16, we were just like all those other little groups that had started around that. Well, I say number of them, weren't very many of them at all. Because actually, the fact of the matter is when I when I started singing in London, there were apart from the BBC singers, there was really only two top professional choirs, and that was the Monteverdi choir with John Elliott and mm. uh, Roger Norrington's Schutz choir, which doesn't yeah. exist today. Yeah. Um so you know, uh, and I, I I was doing a lot of the same music that Peter was was doing in the in the Talisker's, but I was doing it in my own dif different way. I, I thought um, I was very conscious of the fact that uh, you know an audience. Most of the works we're doing in Latin, an audience doesn't understand Latin, or ninety nine percent of them don't. So we need to be conveying in how we performed mm. the emotions of the work, and I, and I wanted to dig more into it. Than, yeah. than I had been doing and so that was the sort of start of it and you know bit by bit it sort of began to take over and then there were there were sort of sort of changing you know career changing moments when I remember a BBC producer coming to a concert we did in Oxford 
and saying, would I do a BBC lunchtime? And, you know, you think, oh, well, actually, maybe we're not that bad and maybe you should do that. And then, then you know, you do your first record and, uh, you know, Ted Perry at Hyperion uh, says, you know, Harry, you know, I, I, you know, I want to do a whole lot of... Uh, LPs with you of this stuff and you think oh right so actually you begin to take this yeah. life seriously but in the early days it was very much it was 16 singers performing 16th century music and that's why we call the 16 I mean uh-huh. you know we don't we don't number 16 as a kind of trade name there's an orchestra now there's 18 singers usually and we don't just keep doing uh, renaissance music but so there was sort of various bits of that as things went through early days of the 16, I wanted to, you know, I was, I was carrying on doing my freelance, conducting all orchestras. I never, ever conducted another choir. Well, I said, I'd say never, ever. I did one or two things, the BBC Singers. I did one with the Danish Radio Choir. But I actually, through all those, I was sort of frustrated because I I, I knew what I wanted to, wanted to achieve and I was achieving that with the 16. So yeah. I didn't really see any need to go and do do other choirs no but what i did need to do was i did need to do other orchestras and yeah. particularly chamber orchestra and widen my whole repertoire and uh yeah so bit by bit things developed um sort of mid 80s uh we've been doing a lot we've been sort of a rent a choir for um uh tom Cooper and the amsterdam baroque orchestra tom didn't have his own choir and so i used to you know it's a way of not only was it a way for me learning from Ton about how to, you know, Baroque style and things like that, it was also a way to earn money for the group and begin to, you know, put us on a, a steadier footing. Because, you know, yes. as you well know, you know, setting up your own group, the financial side of it is not not easy. And uh, no. we've, we've been through highs and, and a hell of a lot of lows. Um, so, you know, things began to happen. And I then, again, you know, I, I, I look back and I think, oh, my God, you know, what? How did I have the courage to? And I went up to Ted Perry, high peer, and I said, "Look, Ted, uh, I want to record Messiah. I haven't got an orchestra, but I'm going to form one. So, and I'm going to do four performances at Smith Square. How about recording it live for four performances?" And uh, I, I suppose part of my part of me was half joking, but he said yes. <laughs> and I thought, right, this is great. So I yeah. put formed an orchestra. We did this sort of very much pared down performance performances of Messiah. Um, and uh, the LP was a big success, um, and it sort of it sort of took the cobwebs off, you know, a great masterpiece. And yes. uh, you know, I've recorded it since. I've recorded it in uh, about uh, ten years ago now for the second time, and much more dramatic. But you know, it, it's it's a very different messiah these days. And so again, from that point came a lot of doing a, a lot of pursuit of, of Handel Oratorio, Monteverdi. Mm. all sorts of things and then for me i think the thing about having your own group mike is that you it, it tends to follow your own loves in music and um you know although i loved you know i used to, i was at oxford and i still but i, I love the music of Marlon and i still do but i was never going to be a marlerian conductor though mm. I, you know, I, mm. I knew for, for you know there's so many people out there much better than me than doing that so i'll stick to what i think i've got something to say about but and there were composers like, of course, Britain, Poulenc, especially, um, that I really felt uh, yeah. a sort of synergy with. And in much more recent years, of course, James Macmillan has been yeah. a big uh, influence and, and a co- fantastic collaboration. So, yeah, so that's been, it's been lovely. That's, 
that whole, and I never, going back to your earlier question, I, I never ever thought the 16 would be what it is and here sort of 40 odd years later. Uh, uh. And still, you know, the, the, but the principles are still there. It's a love of making music. And as soon as, for me, that, as soon as it becomes a chore, that's the day I need to tell myself that, yeah, I, yeah. just just uh, retire, you know, have nice walks of the country and drink lots of beer. How did you find the time? I mean, you know, especially then you go on to set up Cora, your own recording label. How do you find the time to fit in guest conducting weeks? I mean, right, obviously now COVID has affected everything, but how many weeks a year do you try and set aside to go and conduct either old friends you know, or new orchestras? Um, uh, I mean, I'm sure you now have some staff running the 16 for you, but you, you've got oh, to be yeah. involved with board meetings and you've got to be involved with the projects and all of that. Is, is it Was it at the beginning a big, uh, difficult thing to try and split yourself in two to start this new ensemble whilst building a career? And how is it now? Yeah, well, I think in the earlier days, so, so, so particularly through the sort of 90s, I mean, yeah. when that was a massive... Uh, you know, the era of, of the CD recordings when it was just crazy. It, yes. We were stupidly busy. I look back, uh, I think it was 1989 and 1990, I recorded 10 and 11 discs a year, respectively, on those two wow. years for different, you know, all these new companies have started. We were recording for Virgin Classics, Collins Classics. I was still recording for Hyperion. Shandos, we were doing some things for as well. Uh, it was, it was, it's madness when I look back mm, on it. Mm. And I was trying to fit in, you know, I was still having, I was wanting to earn some decent money. I was also wanting to make sure I still, I mean, I had lovely links with the BBC Philharmonic. So I used to do oh. quite a number of things with them. Uh, you know, I've got to say, Larry's got, I've got a Rose Bowl dish downstairs, which was from a concert, Stoke in Trent or Stoke in Trent or somewhere like that. And I look at it now, the programme, it was uh, 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 Wagner Overture to Tannhäuser, uh, one of the Greek Gallic and Shadow and Beethoven Seven, you know, and I remember it vividly to this day. I'd uh. never conducted the, the it was Greek or Rack or whatever it was. I'd never ever conducted before. It was Catherine Stott, mm. uh, which was brilliant, and of course it was just rehearsed on the day for yes. that. I'd, I'd, I'd had the day before BBC Philharmonic in up in Manchester uh, doing the, the Beethoven and, and, the, and the Wagner, but on the day and on the day there was some massive pile up on the M6 or something like that. We literally got stoked for a, a half an hour's rehearsal. And I, I, I never say Catherine, I'm, I'm really thankful that you know this piece and the orchestra is because it's the first time I could act. I've done my homework on it, but, yeah. Yeah, and and it was it was thrilling. I was absolutely uh, wetting myself really, but actually <laughs> it, was, it was great. Um, so, you know, you've been through all those sort of things. And, you know, I did, I did, I, Yes, I did love that, all that guest conducting, and it, it was very much, I managed to slot it in. I mean, yeah. I, and I certainly didn't, I, was, I certainly wasn't away of a vast amount of time. I mean, family life, et cetera, was, was still, you know, really, you know, I don't think the children would ever say they never saw me, so which, no. was, which is great. Um, but, uh, and, but, and in times, you know, through the, days of the 16 working from an agency then setting up on our our own our own office you know I've had fantastic people working for me over the, the year and and uh, taking a lot of the brunt of things so which has been great and actually about so back in oh gosh um it would have been 2000 and 
2008, uh, well, actually, it was started in 2000. I was offered one or two um, artistic directorships of, of a couple of uh, orchestras, um, and I wasn't interested in 2000, but the 16 was so busy, and I, I just couldn't mm. contemplate doing anything else. And so, actually, my freelance work had dwindled apart from the old opera you know i'd still do something at the collie or yeah um or in lisbon opera um and uh but then 2008 came and i was offered the artistic directorship of handel Heinz society in boston and i thought that was a great time then to, you know the 16 was pretty stable and so literally that now is what i do is the yeah. 16 and handel Heiden. i'm finishing at handel Heiden this coming um may and uh then it will give me more time to devote to sort of slightly more interesting, well, not, not more interesting, every 16 project is an interesting one, but some more, maybe more unusual ones. Mm. But yeah, it's really busy. I mean, you know what it's like, you know, you you you, you spend so, many, so much time sort of working out programmes for festivals or something, and, you know, 75% of them don't happen and you feel a bit, you know, pissed off about that. But then <laughs> actually, you know, then maybe a couple of years time, you go back to something you'd done for some weird and wonderful festival that wants to some particular. I mean, once having to do, first of all, asked me to do a program on the Alps. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, and I, and I no, I, on the Alps. Right. So actually, I devised this lovely program. Of, it was This was Renaissance composers. It was Renaissance composers who actually crossed the Alps to get employment. So oh, actually, very good. Came, yeah. it came yeah. out of that, and I, I yeah. thought actually, I thought that's really good, and we used it in for a whole tour once, which was great. But um, yeah, so life's a bit, I said, slightly more simple. But on the other hand, I, I don't know what you find. I mean, the advent of email and things like this, it's just, it, it's sort of trebled one's workload. Yes, that's pretty. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I I could probably end up answering on average, let's say, a day about something to do with my conducting career probably 10 emails if I even answer them all often I'll flag another five and then I'll answer them tomorrow um uh, yeah and, and do I later, yeah, exactly. 75 flagged ouch <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly um programming's an interesting one I don't think we've really talked about it that often on the podcast that the hours you can spend coming up with programs for orchestras and you might come up with six before they choose number seven. But actually, those first six are worth keeping and putting in a in a book somewhere and, you know, devising programs. And also coming up, like you said, with the apps, what a wonderful spin that is. But when you're given a random title, you know, come up with a concert all to do with summer. On paper, it seems easy, but it's not. Um, no. To make it an, an evening worth... Is that something I, just know, something I know I do in sort of summertime and Christmas? If I've got a day in the study and I've finished early, I think, well... I wonder if I can come up with a couple of programmes and just stick them away in a book. Is it something you do? Is it something I enjoy? Oh, I have to do it all the time. Because, I yeah. mean, with, with the 16, I'm devising... Um, so I'm devising a choral pilgrimage programme each year, which is just the choir. That has been a new programme each year. It goes around between 20 and 30 venues. It's also oh. has to work on a CD. Yeah. So there's lots of things. We're on choral pilgrimage tw um, 21. So after... Yeah, that's a lot. And then we also have a choir and band tour. So I work out a program for that. Um, and then with my Boston hat on, I mean, I'm lucky in a way that I, I sort of have projects. So, you know, I've had a, a big one thing with the Handel and Hand Society in Boston that they've introduced me to really is I never realized I'd, I'd get the bug for, ha for Haydn in such a massive way. Yeah. I've, I've been, so I've, I've 
had a big Haydn project where I've, I've recorded all the Paris symphonies from live concerts and I now other London ones and doing some of the later masses as well and sort of just playing around with what you know what what the couplings will be in those has been really interesting yeah making some really um, but I, I love I do love I love programming um, yeah. and you know folk of Coralie as well for the you know for the 16 it there's, there's a wealth of music out there it's just making sure that that music will really work well in a concert uh, you know I think there are far too many people out there who, who sort of slam down all their favorite pieces and they huh. think that's going to work and it, and it doesn't it you doesn't, know, programs yeah. did a bit of thought and you know when it's you know you've got some sort of thick textured music you want you want something that's going to be um, much more sparse to sort of sort of just just take the listener away to, i think i think the main thing about programming is to make sure that that the listener will come away feeling that every piece is special mm. um i mean i've been doing this with coro i've been doing a series of uh, purcell um and uh, you know purcell wrote you know he wrote operas he wrote verse anthems he wrote fantasias he wrote welcome modes for for monarchs uh, all sorts solo songs all sorts of things so these cds i produced have uh, you know they have a, a, a catch three-part catch which is could, could be political or vulgar or whatever it has a welcome ode it has a verse anthem as a solo song so when people listen to it they get a sense of purcell's incredible genius mm. and they're not hearing the same if you if you put a whole load of his welcome modes together they're the same format Sentence, the same format. So you, you're you're losing the the sort of the genius of his mm. sort of form and everything by just hearing a, a load of them together. Yes. So I enjoy doing that. And the things that take me the biggest amount of time are as a new handled oratorio. So I do, which I always like to stage. I mean, I, I, I know the oratorios are that they're, they're concert pieces, but but handle. You know, when he started the oratorio, it's only because the British public didn't like opera anymore. So he still, he's, <laughs> yeah. you know, he still had the drama. Yeah. And, you know, there's still the libretto there. There's still in Handel's librettos, there's the, you know, exit and entries of characters. There's still a concentration on on character and drama. And so I really do, before I record them, I love to have had the opportunity to stage them. So I used to do a lot of Buxton opera which was lovely you know minuscule but you know but they used to get great directors i remember doing semele with stephen langridge you know and stephen had to work on a minuscule budget but he produced the most fantastic um opera you know yeah. with stephen lawless and aiden lag up there and danny slater all sorts of people and so i, I love doing that With your work with the Handel and Haydn Society in Boston, and you've just said that you've sort of really fallen in love a lot with Haydn symphonies. Uh, obviously, working with that orchestra and also the orchestra of the 16, uh, your sort of period performance or HIP or call it what you will. How do you get upset if you see a modern symphony orchestra playing at that? Uh, if you go to a concert and they let's say they start the concert with Haydn 86 and the violins aren't antiphonal and they're using vibrato and uh, the trumpets are, are maybe playing on uh, on trump natural trumpets and the timpanists yeah. might be using calf-headed uh, tap timps <laughs> but everybody else is on modern instruments does that drive you mad or do you think well you know at least there's they're making a nod towards it how um, evangelistic are you about um, period performance <laughs> oh gosh do you know i i i love hearing somebody was to play, play play classical music and yeah. uh, but you know i used to do my first haydn's 
that I ever did was with the BBC film. Yeah. And I remember, remember Yuri saying to me, um, the, the leader at BBC film, saying, Harry, yes. we, should be, we should be playing a hide and symphony every month just for discipline because yeah. you know, it's hard. And the strings, it is incredibly hard. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, I love it. I mean, I, I mean when I went to H&H uh, in Boston, you know, period orchestra, and this was the first time I'd actually performed classical repertoire um Mozart right. Haydn etc on period instruments so it was yeah. it was a revelation um yeah I, you know I mean I, I do I have to say I have a difficulty listening to uh baroque music on um on modern instruments just because the you know the timbre is is so so different and yes. and, 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 and you know but but a lot of it's to do with the fact that you know people say modern orchestras can't play period music it's not about that. It's the fact that a modern orchestra has to play such a phenomenal wide variety of music. You mm. know, it's not just it's not just Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven. It's it's then onto Strauss, Mahler, uh, Bruckner, modern day Burt Whistle. Uh, you know, yeah, uh, the, the Queen, Queen symphonies and Abba symphonies and all oh, sorts of yeah. Friday night, you know, jazz yes. numbers and yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the beauty with you know for the sixteen and and H and H is that we you know we play period period of music and so we and we don't really we don't go outside that yes. um it, i'm not I have, to, I have to confess i'm not a fan of seeing period orchestras sort of delve so quickly into you know you're, you're hearing brooklyn on period instruments you're hearing mm. foray on periods I, I, i'm not a massive fan. i'm not a massive fan of hearing brahms or actually even beethoven played on period instruments. dare i say um you, you i've never i'm not a again i never I love Beethoven. I'm not. I don't feel. I don't feel he's a part of me, so I never really conduct Beethoven. So, mm. and that's that. That's part of my sort of life history, you know, because I've always been able to really do the things that I want to do, and mm. um, that's been that's been an immense luxury. Um, and even when I've gone to, you know, um, uh, on my freelance conducting, more often than not with the chamber orchestras, they've asked me what program I'd like to do. Yeah. So in the days when I used to do things with non-symphonia a lot, you know, it always it, it would always be something like, well, I want to do uh, this this baroque suite, but I also want to do the Stravinsky Apollo yeah. or something like that, and uh, and sort of get get make you know interesting programs. I did one actually with non-symphonia when John Summers was uh, was uh, was uh, the CEO there, and. Uh, I said, I want to do, he said, oh, well, let's do it. We should do, we should get up the 16 and we should do a concert in Durham Cathedral. I said, okay, no yeah. problem. I'll, I'll, I'll devise a program for you. So I devised this sort of Stravinsky idea of being in St. Mark's. And, you know, I remember Stravinsky writing, when he wrote uh, uh, Puccinella and and the choral, um, what was it, the Bach, uh, Brain's Gone, the, the, the choral pieces, uh, the, the pieces he wrote, he, he was crying out for blotting paper in St. Mark's because he just was, there was just too much reverberation. And, and I, and, oh, it was can, sorry, it was Canticum Sacrum, that's right. So I yes. put together this program of Canticum Sacrum, a, a couple of Jesualdo motets that Stravinsky had uh, completed. Um, I did put in Puccinelli just to sort of so the public knew something, but it was a quite, you know, quite hard looking concert. Yeah. And it the, the Durham Cathedral was packed I, I remember John beaming all over his face. There was a review in the, in the uh, Telegraph or Times, which just said, you know, what an amazing concert. And that, that it's, it's only, it said something that only Harry Christmas would dare to put together this programme and it would work. But actually, it was great and it really did work. And I'd love to do it again. 
Sounds like a wonderful program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd lots love. of fun. Yeah, they had to book in sort of loads of instruments they don't have, but it's yes. Quite <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> when you come to learn a new score, a new piece, are you somebody who uses a keyboard? I don't remember you mentioning the fact that you play the keyboard. Um, or do you prefer to sit with just what looking at the score using your inner ear? Are you somebody who goes from the whole overall picture and then delves deeper and deeper and deeper into to details? And uh, more importantly, for us conducting geeks on the podcast who listen, are you a scribbler in of things? Do you use red, blue, black markings? Or are you a virginally white, clean score person? How do you do it, Harry? <laughs> Well, first and foremost, the piano business. Well, that that's a bit of a sore point. I I, no, I blame my mum. She used to try and teach me to play the piano, so that was not a good idea. I'm not a pianist, so, and that's something I really regret mm. not being. But I, you know, I can obviously make a few chords out, etc. Um, so, I mean, the pieces I'm doing are, are going to be always uh, you know, something that's relevant, obviously, to sixteen or H and H usually. Yeah. So, so I just take something like a handle oratory I'm looking at. Um, and it will be a piece that I've never done before. Um, and I, I will not influence myself with recordings. Um, mm. And I will, with a handle oratory, for instance, I'll, I'll read the libretto first. I'll get, get an idea of that. I'll, I'll look, I'll then cursory look through the score to see, you know, where, where handle's going on it, where he's seeing that, you know, he's, he's, you know, getting in, into a personality like Saul, for instance, in that, seeing how that, how that all develops. And then I will go through, I will literally, I will go through the beginning. I'll leave the overture to last. Mm. Um, and I'll go through from aria to, to, to chorus, to recitative, et cetera. And I will literally have a, a highlighter where I just highlight something that's, that's sort of important to me, whether it be um, a, a, a textual phrase or, a, or a, a harmonic moment or something special in, in, the, in, the, in the distribution of the orchestral um, layouts or whatever, and it will work from there. Um, if it's a Haydn symphony, similarly, I will I, I will use my. I, I just use, I use four highlight. If it's if, it, mm -hmm. if it's if it's uh, just purely instrumental, it will be uh, you know orange or red, whichever's closest to hand for the woodwind. It will be green for the brass. It'll be yellow for the uh, strings, and uh, th that's all it is. And I just will put little things that some I want I just want to remember that or something yes. I'm not somebody that litters a score um and I've been a right pain to uh, music publishers because I've been saying you know when I when I'm doing something I said look and it's only for rent I said look just give me the tattiest thing I want to buy it yeah. and uh, and they it still refuse I said I'll give you 10 quid more and you know I, I will get I'll get that score in the end because I have to have my own score yes I and uh <laughs> Uh, but you know, you again with my sort of world of music, I can buy all those, or I, I I'm going to have to get the edition made by somebody for yeah. something that's a little bit more obscure. Um, and for the, the sort of music I spend my time doing, therefore I'm look, looking for all text uh, scores that are really well edited and, yeah. and detailed. Um, and you know, I, I, as I said before, I've been loving doing Haydn. I love doing the, the minuets and trios. Really, I, I get quite excited about because. I just remember Arnencourt always talking about uh, imagery and nature and, 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 and sort of people watching. Mm. And that's what you do because, it, you know, the, the, the sort of the personal touches in any Haydn symphony are so good. And, you must, and I talk a lot to orchestras uh, and choirs as well about, you know, 
imagery ideas in their head mm. and sort of pictorial things to sort of just lift themselves to make make the imagination sort of um, come alive mm. and, and that, that's part of my whole conducting process anyway that I want you know I I want the performers in front of me I want it I want to hear and see their personalities coming across I'm not interested in them just playing the notes on the page mm. I remember playing for one particular conductor an awful lot and we did a piece I can't remember what it was, but it just wasn't as good as usual, you know. And mm. I remember us talking in the pub afterwards, you know, why why is this piece not so good in this conductor's hands as usual? And somebody said, well, he hasn't thought up a story about it. That's why. He hasn't got any any metaphors or stories about it, whereas everything else he's thought up a metaphor and a story. So maybe you just couldn't think mm. of one of that. Uh, and we all went, do you know what? You're right. Absolutely right. And so I think the metaphor and story... Mm. Uh, or even if it's, you know, I, I did Chostakovich 10. I, the concert was literally last night. But I gave the CBC Youth Orchestra my feelings on what Chostakovich may or may not have been thinking when he wrote Absolutely. each particular movement. And I said to them, you don't have to agree with what I'm telling you, but this is why how I feel it. And, and I, you know, this is a story I'm sort of put in my own mind feel free to put your own in there but you must you must realize there's a story going on here um yeah uh, and and i think yeah i think it's an important thing to make not every piece is program music it's not a bubbling book you know but i think it's very important that you have these ideas when you're sitting and looking at the scores and 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 ingesting them yeah i think i think it's very important i mean we've just been to we have a um, student project called Genesis 16, which is now in its its 11th year, actually. Yeah. So it's 22 young singers aged between 18 and 23. And they're from all, you know, they we, we, we tend not to take sort of people who have got had, you know, day in, day out singing, et cetera, et cetera. So these are mm. people from uh, conservatoires, um, universities all over the country and and bring them together. And this week, this last, last weekend, we've been doing new commissions, three new commissions with James McMillan in tow. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been absolutely amazing. And, but we're constantly talking to them about putting, getting ideas into their heads, you know, and make, and, you know, just making their faces come alive. Mm. And it's the same with string players. I mean, wind players can't do it quite so much. They can make them, they can make their eyes still work. But, mm. but I just feel, you know, there's got to be, you know, we, we you've got to have this connection from the stage to the audience. Otherwise, we might as well just give up. I mean, when I went to Boston <laughs> for the first back in two thousand and eight, two thousand nine, I did the interview for the Boston Globe, and the guy there said, uh, "You know, what are the main things you do?" And I said, "Well, look, with H and H, I feel as an orchestra, we need to become much, much more physical. And I don't mm. mean, you know, just moving around a great deal. You know, people need to be standing up if, if we, you know, doing a." You know, simply where we can all stand up and actually just getting more physically involved. Yes. And he said, oh, no, no, people should sit, you know, players should sit sit still in their chairs. And this is, you know, this is the, the American way, it's a bit, a bit the American way, I think. And, um, and, and be still. And I just said to him, I said, well, then, then stay at home and listen to a CD. What's the point in coming to a concert hall? So there was my, there's the next two, bad, two years bad reviews. But anyway, it was worth it. <laughs> If you are new to this podcast, you may not know that there's another way you can learn about conductors and conducting by subscribing to my Patreon page. You can hear interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers and hear their thoughts on conducting and conductors. You can read my diaries when I guest conduct. You can take part in group meetings with other like-minded fans of this podcast. You can read articles on conducting and conductors and also see videos of the great conductors. And you can even have conducting lessons from myself. 
All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, which is less than a nice glass of wine in most cities, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Harry Christophers. Harry, it is that time of the podcast where you must traverse the 10 questions like all of the previous conductors have. And they all started with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Well, the sound I love is mm. Skylarks. We have a park near us, Lunniston Park, and, uh, you know, you're walking through the through down the paths and there's these skylights and they're hovering they make the most beautiful sound they're like something out of they look when I mean, they hover they're like something out of star wars you know yeah. but i love it sound i hate that's quite that's quite a tricky one really because i lived when we lived in canterbury we had a we, we basically our lives were in this room behind the shop where right. we ate with the television was around i had a down syndrome brother with a two he had a television on all the time on full volume uh, only on ITV. I used to have to practice the piano or the clarinet or sing and do my homework. So I'm used to shutting out noise, but there's yes. one noise that really grates on me, and that's it's somewhere on the the Bakerloo line. It's past. It's on the way to Paddington, and it must be as corner it's taking. And oh my God, the screeching of the of the rusty or whatever that's there is just horrendous. I know exactly where you are, and I can't put it either. I, I use that line a fair amount because I, I travelled from Birmingham to Marleybone, and yeah, there is there is a, a point on that Bakerloo line that is deafeningly loud. Um, yeah, it's horrendous, horrible. horrendous. <laughs> well, maybe on your for question three, you won't be using the Bakerloo line on your day off. <laughs> uh, if you had twenty four hours free, what would you spend it doing? You know, I think I'm really boring. It would be a really long walk that would have a fantastic pub in the middle of it where I could have down a nice couple of decent pints and then carry on a walk afterwards. Maybe, you know, extending this day, then get up to get get up to hype, get up to the Emirates, watch the Arsenal, and hopefully they'd win just like they did the other day. So I'm a big <laughs> Arsenal supporter, by the way. Ah. Oh, well, there we are. Um, uh, you mentioned cricket earlier on, and David Gower, and my, you, it piqued my interest. Um, yeah. uh, football will draw a veil over the fact that you're an Arsenal <laughs> supporter, and I'm not one. <laughs> but the, I think our teams are going... Your team's probably doing slightly better than mine at the moment. Uh, I'm a Manchester United fan, so it's the season is not going brilliantly. No, um, you did all right yesterday. Though. I did so, all right, so yeah, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's because we beat Spurs, and so you're happy. So. Well, quite, yeah, look, we're very happy. The longer you keep social as manager we're happy yeah, yeah i'm sure <laughs> um on a slightly more serious note question four uh, can you name your favorite conductor or conductors of yesteryear well i mentioned it before in the podcast and it'd be lenny bernstein yeah. uh, i just uh yeah loved i was and i bought you know various i used to love his marla as well mm. and uh i mean latter days of it all it, it's something a lot of it got a bit overindulgent and, and maybe a bit too slow but uh, you know he i remember also watching uh i saw it the other day a sky arts thing on uh late late on in life with um bernstein conducting marla with vienna phil mm. uh, and it was absolutely fascinating i'd also see it, saw him working with students and it was just brilliant you know he was talking about you know how he, he was finding it difficult to move more and actually he just he just found this wonderful energy speaking to uh, young conductors it was great great to see yeah, his name come, has come up quite often uh, on the on yeah. the, as, as the answer to that question. Uh, the mm -hmm. question 
that some conductors find difficult, but you may not, who knows. Can you name your favourite current conductors or conductor? That's really, really difficult um, mm. because I don't see, you know, you know, it's like conductors don't really meet up with other conductors and you very rarely, <laughs> as I said before, I very rarely go to concerts, but, uh, you know, anything that Simon Rattle does. I mean, Simon, I met um, numerous years ago and every time I see him, he, st he still remembers who I am and he always comments the fact that I've got... Uh, a few less grey hairs than, than he has. Same length hair, even though I think I'm a year older than him. So, <laughs> <laughs> You're right about conductors never meeting up with each other. And it's been the absolute joy of this podcast is mm. spending an hour to an hour and a half chatting to another conductor. And often I've pressed stop the stop record button and we've carried on chatting afterwards because you just don't get to chat to conductors. No. And, and I'm yeah. up to the... 94 or 95 different conductors now and, wow. and i've met quite a few afterwards now so, you know, lockdown has, has sort of ended i've gone to concerts and we've sort of carried you know met yeah. in real life and it's been wonderful it's been absolutely <laughs> lovely so i'm so glad i set it up all these yeah good on you <laughs> what is the hardest work you've ever conducted well for me it's, it's very simple it was uh james mcmillan's fifth symphony which he, he wrote for uh, Genesis Foundation at the 16, and we mm. premiered it in uh, in the Usher Hall 2019, the year, that, well, actually, that's the year of the 16th, 40th anniversary, my 40th wedding anniversary, and thank God we got it all in before yes. blessed COVID started. Yeah. But, you know, I, I remember beginning of the year, um, Jimmy sent it through me, it was in three movements, he sent them through, you know, as he'd finished each one, and uh, I remember the first movement landed just after Christmas, and I opened it uh, and I sort of took one lock and I shut it straight away. And I thought, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to leave it to the new, beginning of the new year. I say, and I just, I just, I just think, and I remember, I remember texting Jibby and saying, look, I said, Jibby, what, what, what's all this um, sort of 932, 1232, 2732, whatever, et cetera. What's all this? You usually just conduct it, you know, you just write in four, four, three, four, and usually yeah. the movements are quite slow, you know, crotchety was 60. <laughs> and he said, Oh, Harry, it's only compound time. I said, I know it's compound time, but I've got, I've got a bloody well conducted. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, but it was, and it was a mammoth score. It was, it was right. um, totally full orchestra, massive percussion section, plus harp, uh, piano, uh, two choirs, the 16 were this kind of, um, so instead of soloists, 16 was sort of this uh, chamber choir, um, chamber, and then we had a large 40 strong Genesis 16 alum, alumni, all youngsters, but all health, healthy, healthy mm. singers. And uh, it was, it was, yeah, it was the largest thing I'd ever done. It was a massive, massive orchestra. And of course it's the added thing, you know, it was a premiere um, and you know, I've had a long, We've had a long and really fantastic association with, with Jimmy, and and he was he's constantly trying out new ideas. So he mm. had this, he, you know, he wanted to use a lot of uh, he wanted the it was the SEO, he wanted all the horns and trumpets to play on on natural if they, if they could, and just you know really sort of basic sort of natural harmonics coming out out through that, and then um, he had the double basses, and he just wanted this sound that was um, that was sort of incredibly earthy and visceral it meant them bowing on their on their tail pin 
Mm. So it's, it's sort of see, you see them all sort of trying to lean over, get off their stores and lean down without falling over, but just make it. And they were, they were, they were working this for ages to try and sort of make the sound that Jimmy wanted. But the great thing is the whole, again, lovely association they have with James. Mm. Um, but And the similarly with the 16. So, you know, it's those lovely occasions. You, everybody is, is up for it mm. and really wanted to maintain something. And here am I sort of just, you know, trying to, control it and actually it, it was phenomenal um and in the usher hall it was a bit like tarangalila in the sense that it filled the usher hall mm. we then did that we did then did the london premiere and recorded it at the barbican and the barbican just couldn't take it it, yeah. was, it felt it i know i remember the rehearsals for the barbican it feeling constricted in sound and and just too con it was too contained it couldn't get out of the of the stage really uh, but mm. actually having said that the recording is amazing i mean mike hatched it up brilliant job engineering and Mark Brown producing it. But, um, you know, that was just from one live performance. But it, it, yeah, by far the most difficult thing I've ever, ever had to do. Well, I've interviewed him for this podcast. I wish I'd known that and I might have asked yeah. him, you know, uh, do you yeah. ever think about conducting the piece after you've written it yourself? And, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe yeah. not making it quite so difficult to conduct. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he could do it, though. He could. Yeah. He's actually, I, I think he, he's, he's hoping for a performance of that Fifth Symphony. Um, I mean, one of the best ones we did with with James was, of course, his Stabat Mater, which we, uh, which is, which is a masterpiece. There's oh. absolutely no doubt. And we, we've done that in New York now and and London, obviously Scotland. But we also uh, did a performance of that in the Sistine Chapel, wow. which was just staggering. That was the sixteen with the Britain Symphonia, oh. and uh, really new meeting old. You know, got the Michelangelo there, and then this new music. It was an incredible experience, just amazing. But that's Brilliant. much easier to conduct. That's, <laughs> that, much is, although having said that, instead I say much easier to conduct. It's 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 absolutely um, emotionally draining ah, because it's uh, yeah. it's like I mean, James being a you know a Catholic anyway. The, the, his insights into the, the Stabat Mater text are incredible. Um, but it's also the way he, the way he's written this. He's, he's. It's. It, there's also almost a sort of cinematography um, feeling behind it. You, you, you feel you're, you're there. You feel the, you know, the darkness of the sky, or the, or the braying of the crowd. You know, wanting Jesus' death, and it, it, you just feel everything. And yeah. it's, it's, it's a, it's phenomenal. Great piece. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Tea bags. Tea bags. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you know, and you know what? You go, ah, oh, well, I don't know. I love tea. I don't, I'm not a coffee drinker. So right. um, I, I love, love tea and I just like normal, straightforward builder's tea. <laughs> Can you get a decent cup of tea in France or anywhere like that? No. You'll, get, you'll get, it's just disgusting. They don't boil the water properly. States, America, you'd have thought their passion for, for, uh, matters English that uh, and particularly in Boston that they would have tea so the best best cup of tea I can get out in Boston is in Starbucks right yeah. so you know there I have I, I take my take my t organic tea bags my normal sort of yeah English breakfast ones whole pack of them over to Boston boil up the water properly put the milk in first yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> but you know, you're not the only person to say tea bags. But there's oh, no, oh, right. no, no, there, there, there was one other. I can't remember who it was. At least one other. Obviously, as passionate as you were, and they said much the same. Doesn't matter where you go, you just can't beat making your own cup of tea using your own tea bags, and nobody can replicate that. Once you leave the the shores of the United Kingdom, you can't get a decent <laughs> cup of tea. No. Uh, I drink coffee, so I'm all right. You're uh, okay. Yeah, yeah I'm okay. But yeah. <laughs> Uh, number eight, and this can be anything you want. If you want us to all wear Arsenal football kit or on stage, <laughs> whatever you want it to be, what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Oh, do you know, I could be really boring. And actually, there's, 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 for me, actually, as a conductor, there's nothing really, because oh. I, I just, I, I, I've been so lucky to sort of have my own group and, and now my group in Boston, h h in Boston. So there's, there's, it's been absolutely wonderful. And if there's anything, I suppose the only thing I, I dislike about it is taking my bloody, my, my, my shirt off at the end of a concert. You know, it's just, I mean, what do football, I suppose footballers are right because they could just jump into a shower, can't they? Yeah. But taking that sopping, sogging wet shirt off, or actually even worse, not having a spare shirt in the interval and mm. suddenly realise that uh, you've got to go over the second half and you put your jacket on, it's all clinging to you. But then, of course, once you're out there and you're doing it all, it's all forgotten. Yeah. So that's the only thing I would, it's, it's a tire. Yes. No, but no, I wouldn't wear an Arsenal shirt. And I don't <laughs> think, I did once in, in Holland see a, 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 a a hilarious uh, suit. It was, it was suit with shorts, yeah. which I thought, oh God, I, would I love to wear shorts for a just just to be just to not feel hot. Yeah, and that's a single thing. I, I just I, I hate feeling over hot. I've done some family concerts for a dear friend of mine, Alistair Malloy, uh, oh, yeah. and a couple of times it's been about sport. Uh, the one time I dressed in full England football kit, so I did. I was wearing shorts, uh, you know, football socks and trainers, and it did feel wonderful not to be so hot. Why I then the next time I did the same show with him wore a full uh, cricket kit with helmet pads and gloves. <laughs> I have no idea because I was boiling hot. Um, <laughs> you'd think I'd have learnt my lesson, but yeah, I agree That's with you. Brilliant. If uh, yeah, if the couple of times I've not had a spare shirt. Or, I've, or even worse, I've gone outside for a cigarette or a breath of fresh air in the interval and then come back in and, re, you know, you put your jacket on and everything just feels sort of wet and sticky and horrible. You just like, oh, God, oh. no. Yeah, uh, no, I agree with you. But feeling too yeah. hot is horrible. Yeah. Number nine, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oh, do you know, this is really, really naive, but I'd really like to be a postman. <laughs> <laughs> I just love, I, I love, I mean, we've got a wonderful postman here called Steve, and uh, that's that's another thing. So, so we know we know Steve. He's a you know, and it, just you know, the cases when you can chat to them, they chat mm. to you. You know, you know, you get to know your public in this, a bit the same way as a conductor, but you've much wider public and of all sorts. And actually, the other thing I would really love to be able to do is I'd love to be able to wear shorts all year long mm. and just wander around in the elements and uh, you know. Uh, Maybe not. Maybe not when it's actually pelting down with uh, with icy snow or something like that. But certainly, if it's raining, I wouldn't mind wearing shorts. But uh, yeah, I just I don't know something about being a postman. I've always I've always loved it. It's a fascination from when I was really young, and just you know the, the thrill for being a kid and having a letter come through the door and uh, post box. But and actually to be out there. But every postman I've ever had uh, uh, met in in life, I've really enjoyed chatting to. Him. 
well, you're my first postman, um, <laughs> and, and I've now got to dig some more. I want to know a, a rural round or a city round. Oh, uh, no, and, 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 and would you mind being attacked by dogs occasionally? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got actually uh, my dog was because she's very small, but that's all right. Yeah. I wouldn't mind that. Yeah, rural postman. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, very I'd... much so. Sounds great. I mean, watching the seasons go by every morning from, you know, getting yeah. up in the in darkness and finishing your round in darkness to getting up in light. And yeah, what fascinating. And finally, Harry, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Well, I love lamb. So it's got to, it's got to be, a, it has to be roast lamb with mm-hmm. all the trimmings, mm-hmm. um, which is, yeah, maybe with a, I, I, I was, yeah, with roast lamb. I think I'd have it with a kind of a pureed, maybe pureed swede with roast, buttered pureed swede with mm-hmm. roast lamb, roast, roast obviously, nice, nice, rich, rich red wine gravy. Um, yeah, that's 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 what I'd adore. And not, I wouldn't have, swill it down with this because I want to swill it down with a nice, nice glass of, of wine. But I, I love beer. I mean, I said, oh. told you earlier, I was born in a pub, so um, you know, it's got to be with me. So. And, you know, we're blessed today with so many fantastic new breweries it's sort of and, and a sort of little little local ones starting up. Every area has a, has a little brewery, which is fantastic. Mm. You can't do better than a pint of otter, though. And uh, that's uh, it's particularly the summer ales. I love those summer ales because they're very hoppy. Yes. And, and they slip down a treat. And, that, and that, unfortunately, the the problem is with with our with our line of business is that uh, we're very often performing on a day and there's no better time to swig down a nice pint is it, it's lunchtime no that's very so true that, so when you're not working lunchtime two or three pints very nice indeed <laughs> <laughs> i have to ask i have to ask with your roast lamb because i play cricket with a young man who has mint sauce with everything oh mint no. sauce with your lamb not really i used to i don't right. these days yeah but your love of, of real ale and craft beer, I'm with you absolutely 100%. And maybe one day, uh, yeah, when next time you're in Birmingham, I'll take you to the pub where they sell Batham's Bitter, which I consider to be the greatest pint of beer on the planet. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and, uh, and yeah, if next time you're in Birmingham, let's meet up. Because I think it would be as fantastic as this has been for the last yeah. hour or so. Thank you, Harry, for coming oh, on. It's a pleasure, and, Mike. And uh, I hope to see you soon. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, let's meet up in Birmingham. That sounds a good idea. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with an English conductor and composer who is equally at home conducting on the concert platform and in the Opera House. He famously studied composition with Messian, he's directed many music festivals, won the Arnold Schoenberg Prize, and his last two operas have been huge successes. But until then... Bye-bye.